Watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Holland. Yes, it's me. Yes, thank you so much. It's me. Keep clapping. Keep clapping. Clap for the miracle. I am still the Libertarian Party nominee. One week later, still strong Libertarian Party nominee. Clap if you knew that I would continue to be the nominee. How would we know that you knew that if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally spike cohen thank you for taking a break for your long day of social distancing and self-isolation to join me on this very special episode of my fellow americans where i'm far away from you and working we can continue to stay several feet away from each other this is a muddied waters media production check us out on facebook youtube instagram anchor twitter twitch periscope itunes google play float Everywhere, check us out on all the podcasting apps and everything else. Muddy Waters Media taking over. Check us out everywhere. Be sure to like us, follow us, five-star us, hit that bell if applicable. If there's a bell, be sure to hit it. And share this video right this very second. The last thing I want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. Be sure to share the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids Love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Dad Bod Calendar, featuring some of the sexiest libertarian men to ever be on a calendar. 
that you apparently would want for some reason. If you are still looking to socially distance, one of the most powerful ways is to carry this calendar around with you for only $12, including shipping. If you want it signed by the next vice president of the United States of America, me, it's only $30, including shipping. LibertarianDadBod.com. This episode is also brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing Waffle House-related caucus in the Libertarian Party. This episode, of course, is also brought to you by the Jorgensen Cohen 2020 campaign. Joe Jorgensen and I are campaigning for a world set free in our lifetimes. Check us out on joj2020.com. This episode is brought to you by Black Coffee, which I'm told is an amazing coffee, even though I don't I don't drink coffee, but I'm told it's great. I need I need to work on the, the plug for this coffee. But if you use the checkout code MW at checkout, you get free shipping and we get money as well. So be sure to do that. And I would like to... Oh, episode is also brought to you by Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. I don't have his picture, but go to Chris Reynolds Law if you need a personal injury attorney in Florida. Thank you so much. Uh, The intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans is brought to you by the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook, SoundCloud. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography. It's like $25. It'll be the happiest, best purchase you make today. Thank you so much, Mr. Joe Davi. I'd like to thank Le Bleu for this delicious ultra-pure water that I'm drinking on this episode. Thank you so much, Le Bleu, Bulavanaka. That is delicious. Shout out to Tehran Turks' momentum. As always, folks, we have got an awesome episode tonight for you. Uh, I have with me two incredible human beings who have been working for years advocating for our right to keep and bear arms in activism as well as in training, and they are joining us tonight to have a wide-ranging conversation with me about gun rights, civil liberties, police brutality, self-protection, and much more. So without further ado, here they are. First, she is a professional, professional firearms instructor as well as the owner of My Sister's Keeper Defense a training organization that is dedicated to empowering women through safe firearms education with the aim of effectively educating one million women on firearms safety and fundamentals. She is Marcelle Tig Davis, and she is the Director of Outreach for Gun Owners of America uh, and the founder of, of Empowered, a nonprofit group designed to educate, train, and equip young women in the use of firearms for protection on college campuses. She also has the distinction which she makes known whenever possible, of being someone who knew me before I became famous. She is Antonia Okafor-Cover. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, I'm really happy to have you on. Uh, this was actually Antonia's idea, and uh, I wish I could take credit for it, but this is a fantastic idea with everything going on. I think it would, what, a, what a perfect opportunity for us to talk about the issues that we are facing right now. Um, now, ladies, before we get started with our conversation, I wanted to give each of you a chance to tell our audience about the organizations that you're a part of uh, and what you do as part of your involvement with them. And I will start with you, Antonia. Yeah, so I'm the director of outreach for Gunners of America, which is two million members and activists strong um, national organization, the only no compromise gun lobby out there. Um, and I started working with them uh, last year when I brought on Empowered, uh, which you talked about earlier, um, to the organization. And so I am now 
essentially doing that through GOA and, and doing a lot of other stuff when it comes to outreach. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm doing now. Um, I know I, it's crazy that I've been doing activism or being in this world for the last five years, and, and this is where I am now, and, and I think it's a perfect fit. But essentially why I really wanted to have this conversation is because I think, unfortunately, the two A's being left out and the original reason of why we have a Second Amendment and why the founders put that um, in there um, is kind of being passed over right now. So I, I just I'm really excited to talk about this tonight and to be able to really have an honest conversation about this. That's great. We're, we're glad that you joined us. And uh, Tig, I will let you tell us about your, and I'll, I'll answer, I'll ask the question again, uh, because I already forgot how it was worded. Um, but um, let's see here. Um, so uh, before we get started, I uh, want to give you a chance to uh, tell everyone, uh, tell the audience about the organization that you're a part of and what you do as part of your involvement with them. Yes, yeah, so I'm the owner of My Sister's Keeper Defense, formerly known as Trigger Happy Firearm Instruction. I started my firearms instruction company back in 2016, and I've been traveling the country since then to over 21 cities, and I've been able to teach close to 3,000 women basic handguns and fundamentals. I, I want to be that first face that they see when they're trying to learn about firearm safety and fundamentals. So I've been doing that for a few years. And then also I work for the United States Concealed Carry Association. I am a staff instructor here and a business development specialist also. That's awesome. That is awesome. So ladies, obviously the big news right now are the protests that are happening as a reaction to the rampant police brutality, including the recent murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but also other high profile killings of nonviolent people such as Philando Castile, T T Tamir Rice, John Crawford, Duncan Lemp, Eric Garner, and seemingly countless others. What are your thoughts on these protests? And I, I'll start with you, Angela, or Angela. I will start with you, uh, Tig, and I will then let, um, it, again, this is a conversational thing, so, you know, anyone is free to chime in whenever you see fit. I will start with you, uh, Tig. What are your thoughts on, on the protests and the, and the police brutality that's happening? Um, I feel like it's something that's been going on for a very long time. It's just in recent years, in the, in the last probably 10 years, we're starting to see these um, murders happen on video because of the spread of social media. Right. It's becoming more widely publicized, but it's been happening. And I don't think there was ever a time when police brutality wasn't an issue in this country. You know, going back to slavery times and slave patrols, I feel like it's been an issue. But now that it's becoming more known, I think, you know, it's a double-edged sword you know, one, you know, we're being re-traumatized over and over from seeing these things and almost desensitized to them. But then two, now that everyone knows what's going on, we can do something about it. You know, we can't turn a blind eye because now that we see it's happening, we can fix the issue. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with racism. But then, you know, on the other side with police being involved, a lot of it is just this authoritarian, you know, mindset they have and and that's an issue you know you're not the judge jury and executioner right there right on the exactly street. and you know the police have a, a hard job i understand my ex-husband's law enforcement and it, it's a tough job but at the same time you have to have the right mindset to you know be able to control people's livelihoods and freedom and you know if you if you're not that type of person that's not the job for you and i feel like we have a lot of uh, misalignment of personalities on our police forces 
and people uh, who really shouldn't be law enforcement who are acting in those roles. They don't have the mentality. They don't have the patience. They don't have the the knowledge even of the communities they're policing to you know have that have that role. So I, I think that's that's one of the biggest issues, and I'm I'm sure we'll talk more about that too. Yeah, and that's a good way of putting it, the, the misalignment of personalities of the people that are attracted to a kind of job where they really should try to be de-escalating, wouldn't you say, Antonia? Yeah, uh, and I mean, that's why I know this audience gets it better probably than any other. Um, the fact that we understand individualism and the fact that not just because there are a lot of or in, in this case, we're talking about the cases where there are bad police officers, um, that obviously it's not all police officers. And I think most people get that. Although sometimes I kind of, people surprise me and, and really just think it's just one or the other. Um, I think for the most part, we all reasonably minded people understand that there are quote unquote bad apples, but, um, yeah, being in a system that encourages that, that attracts people um, to that. It's really important, just like a gun owner, to, um, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, the fact that they are unique in being part of the government, which has a monopoly of force. Um, so it's important, very important that we continue to check and, and keep accountability um, strong within that system. And I think that's what people are really calling for right now. And I actually have, so. I, and I have that's an excellent point. I actually have a follow up question for both of you, and I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, something that uh, Tig had mentioned that um, you know, right now with the proliferation of this, might not be a case where police brutality is getting worse. It may just be a case where because we all have HD cameras and instant access to live streaming on social media, we're just able to see it when it's happening. Instead of it just being one person who, or a few people that witnessed it who then told some other people and, and the rest of us may never hear about it unless you're in that community. Uh, now everyone, people that are maybe in communities like mine where we don't see a lot of that happening and we're only ever hearing of it from people who lived in other neighborhoods, we're now seeing it firsthand. My question to you is, do you think that that runs the potential risk of us just, uh, and, and Tig had mentioned this, becoming sort of desensitized to it and just starting to treat it like, well, that's just, you know, it's just something that happens and there's nothing we can do about it? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think what's really sad to see is, or think about, like, for example, even Breonna Taylor, um, people, you know, talk to people are talking about it right now, like, where's the justice for her? Yeah. Um, or even Kenneth Walker, who her boyfriend, who was arrested. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sad to say is that it's more than likely she's not getting the attention that she deserves, at least at least the, the equal attention, is because she didn't have a viral video um, that accompanied her yeah. her tragedy. Um, but yeah, at the, at the end of the day, it is nice that we do have people every day who are able to record these situations. Of course, but I would rather not have these situations at all so we right. don't have to record any of them, of course. But that is why we're seeing it more often. That is why we see the public outcry. And in case of Ahmed uh, Arbery, we wouldn't have... This ha that happened in March, and because of the viral video is why something's happening. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword, but for the most part, it has been very helpful keeping people accountable. Um, I just wish it would be more preventative than, you know, reactionary. That's a good point. Uh, Tig, you know, she brings up a great point that, 
you know, in the, especially in the case of Amoda Arbery, Arbery um, you know, the common phrase that we keep hearing is they didn't get arrested because they saw the video. They got arrested because we saw the video. So do you agree that it's probably more good than bad that we're seeing this up front and, and up close? I mean, it's absolutely great that we are being able to watch what happens. And, you know, you can't argue with video. You know, it can be he said, she said, but I right. saw what happened on the video. So, right. I mean, how can you argue those things that we are watching, you know, and we can speculate and, and dissect the video. But I saw George Floyd's murder. You know, you can you can say what you want, but it, it's on video. So I think that is the, the one benefit of having these these incidents and these murders filmed is that, you know, you can't argue with the video evidence. It's proof. Um, and. It's unfortunate that some of the other cases like Breonna Taylor's, you know, where there was no video are almost being ignored. And, I, you know, I, I find issue with that. And I think it's also an issue that, you know, she's a black woman, which if, if we consider if certain people think of black people as second class citizens, black women are almost third class citizens because, you know, the, the patriarchy that runs this country, women are less important uh, are seen as less important than men are. There are so many women who've been victims of police brutality who we never hear their names. No one ever shares their stories. People aren't marching for these women. And, um, you know, it's pa patriarchy, but it's also racism too. Um, so yeah, I I'm glad that we do have the evidence, but I really do wish it was a preventative measure. Like, hey, don't do this bad thing because it's going to be seen around the world. You're going to get fired. You're going to prison. Yep. You know, that's pretty much the end of your life. But apparently, you know, that's not as big of a deterrent as we thought it would be. Yeah. That's also true. The uh, you brought up a good point. Uh, according to statistics, black women are actually the most likely to disproportionately suffer from police brutality. And yet, for whatever reason, uh, often when we talk about a disproportionate use of force against people of color, it's black men that we focus on. And I, I'm sure there are many theories. You, you brought up a couple of them, but there are probably a few different theories as to why that is. I want to go through a couple of these comments. First of all, there are a ton of comments here saying how you are both amazing and the work that you do is incredible. Uh, some people lamenting that this is one of the rare episodes where I am not the most attractive person on the show. Um, the, uh, what do we have here? Uh, one, uh, John S. Hurtley said, most of us had to block Facebook friends because they show their racism. It's sad to see so many ill-informed opinions about our human family. Um, and uh, so that kind of brings us to our next question here. Um, we, we know from the law enforcement data that people of color are much more likely to die at the hands of the police, especially if they are unarmed. And we, we've just been talking about that. And, and I, I believe it was you, Tig, that mentioned that the origins of modern policing in the U.S. are rooted in the slave patrols of the Deep South during the area, era of chattel slavery. Um, do you believe that the continued uh, dispro disproportionate harm against people of color at the hands of law enforcement is something that can't be avoided due to the nature of its origins and the, the structure that it has as a result of that? Or do you think that there are ways to uh, reform it? And I, I'll start with uh, you on this question, Tig. Yes, I absolutely think there are ways to reform it. And, you know, I've been trying to find out ways myself, how can I influence and affect change in my own communities? And, and what can I do? How can I help fix things just in my small area that I live in, you know, maybe not even on a federal or national level. And, you know, some of the ideas I came up with were, you know, talking to my ex-husband were, 
getting familiar with the area that you're going to patrol. A lot of the law enforcement officers, you know, where I was living in, like Clayton County, Georgia, near Atlanta, they were from other counties. They had never lived in Clayton County, where it's a majority black populace. You know, right. they had never experienced dealing with, you know, these black people, these cultures. There are so certain, you know, cultural no uh, norms and standards in some of these communities that they're not familiar with. There's, you know, slang, there's colloquialisms. There's so many different subtle nuances to that culture that if you're not from there and you're not used to it, it can be fearful. You can be afraid of a culture that you don't understand. And now you are enforcing laws in that community that you don't understand. I find a problem with that. I feel like if anything, that's probably one of the biggest changes we can make is some sort of integration process. Maybe you have to live in the county where you're going to be a police officer right. for a certain amount of time, you know, before you're able to patrol there. You know, you're coming from a different place. You don't understand the, the culture or the history of the place where you're enforcing laws. And I feel like that's a lot of the issues that we're finding with law enforcement. And that's why there's so much irrational fear of the people that they are policing. And there's also an, an implicit bias there often against people of color, even if they aren't recognizing it. Antonia, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that it's something that can be reformed through measures? Or do you think, you know, because of the nature of how these organizations started that, you know, it may not be something that can be fixed? Yeah, well, I think it's good that you brought up the fact that, I mean, even then, obviously, that wasn't the beginning of well, not even American, the America, but even before that, that yep. it's a, essentially a modern institution uh, relatively to, um, you know, American history. I think it's what, 1830s, the first Boston police force was actually um, in, in existence. And so this whole idea that we have a modern policing, I think, first of all, people think it's always existed. It's always been exactly the same. It's right. always um, been like what Tig was saying is that it's, people outside of your community um it's a professionalized force like but a lot of history shows it's, it's very much the opposite it was more of a private security type of thing um or the second amendment right the people who actually had you know had guns and or firearms that's what they were doing is how they were protecting their property and their livelihoods and their and the people that they care about um so with that in mind i think also um but yeah, you were talking about like implicit bias. Uh, my husband's white. And so uh, we were actually having this conversation the last few weeks about what, what's going on. I'm pregnant, about to have a, a baby um, in the next few months. And just thinking about our future child and how are people going to look look at him and stuff yeah. like that. Um, so, I mean, even my husband talked about the fact that he grew up in Houston and it was a very diverse uh, community that he lived in, but he has always grown up with the idea that cops equal is good, is a good thing. Right. Um, that if some if you're lost, you go to a cop. If you're 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 scared, if you feel threatened, you go to a cop. Versus his love love his friends, he remembers when cops would come to them. Um, a lot of his black friends would leave, um, would feel threatened, would run away. Um, it was a very different response. And do right. again, do I think that's because all cops are bad? Obviously not. But because there is that implicit bias on both on both sides, right? Um, there are people in the society that think because of the color of your skin that you might come from a rougher neighborhood or you might be a rougher person or in general. Um, versus also, if you are black and you're looking at a police officer, you're not sure if that they're really for you 
or they're really a threat. Um, so I think that's part of it is that there's people who don't really know each other, like Tig was saying, not in the same community. Maybe it would have been different if you had known that police officer growing up um, for most of your life. Obviously, it's going to be different. Right, um, but if you right, have right. somebody different from a different uh, community coming in, you have no idea who they are or where they're coming from. So that alone could actually help, even if there's still differences in race and even if there's still differences in implicit or inherent bias or unconscious bias, just the fact that they know each other would help to, or at least are familiar with each other would help to deal with those types of things. That's a good, I mean, it's a good point. I, I'm certainly not against the idea of kind of requiring localization of, of police officers. Now, both of you are obviously women of color and you have started organizations that are heavily involved with encouraging women to take control of their protection by utilizing their right to keep and bear arms and to learn how to effectively use them. Um, what would a society look like uh, in which most women, including women of color, uh, were armed and trained to use their weapons? And I'll, I'll start with you this time, Antonia. Um, man, what would it look like? Um, you know what? Fortunately, I think we're seeing a lot more of that. Um, man, the last week or so, I've gotten so many uh, requests for training, especially since COVID essentially has disappeared now because, you know, everyone's doing protests. So obviously it's gone. Uh, <laughs> so people are just like, okay, Antonia, can you come out and, and teach us? And so it's a lot of black, other black women. And this is Denver, okay? This is probably like all the black women probably in all in Colorado together <laughs> at one time. <laughs> There's not many people here. Um, so it's been nice to be able to see that, uh, you know, encouragement. But we've seen the thing is, it's not, it's not new. The studies have shown it's been trending that more women of color, more specifically more black women um, are are used, utilizing firearms. And it makes it has always made sense to me Um if you look at the what's happening right now, I mean, if you don't trust law enforcement, then who else are you going to trust? You have to trust right, yourself. Exactly. And really safety goes, you know, it, it comes down to you at the end or the, even people maybe in your household, but that's it. Um, so we're having this conversation about defunding the police, about reforming the police um, and law enforcement in general. So really it is going to be more so even about like what you are doing are you trained are you do you have a firearm are you able to get one now because of things like when covid happens and you're you're in a two-week wait to be able to get a firearm or get your uh um your background processed or even to be able to get your permit because they weren't even issuing permits for a while because it wasn't considered an essential an essential service, service. To, yeah yeah right yeah. yeah so it's i think a lot of people are just realizing hey it's up to me so so yeah. that's a good point so uh tig you know that is, we're talking about, you know, the possibility of, of either, uh, and we'll get into that later, but either defunding or reforming police. If there's less, you know, heavy police involvement, that would kind of inherently mean that uh, you would want to have more people that would be able to defend themselves, especially women uh, and especially women of color. So is that how you think that would look, that there wouldn't be as much need for law enforcement or... I mean, I feel like people should be their own protectors. And, and what people forget, too, about law enforcement is that they're not your personal security. They're there. You know, you call them after something has happened. They don't wait outside your house for someone to break in. Right. You know, they're law enforcement. They're there to enforce laws and protect and serve is while it's a nice slogan. You know, that's not their primary role to make sure nothing bad ever happens to you. So whether we defund the police, whether we go through police reform or whether nothing changes at all, you should always, like Antonio was saying, 
you should always be your first line of self-defense, especially for women. You know, I was reading some articles about what happened during COVID and domestic violence occurrences and situations spiked because women are locked indoors with their attackers with no way for them to defend themselves. Sexual assaults were on the rise. Um, As a a sexual assault and domestic violence survivor myself, I understand how complicated that situation can be when you're trapped with your attacker and you have no way out and then social distancing and quarantine on top of that you have literally no escape there's nowhere to go there's no reprieve from you know the abuse you're suffering at home right and i I, mm -hmm. no i was just i was agreeing with you yeah i definitely think women especially should should have a way to protect themselves and you know it's the great equalizer like we always say you know my strength versus a man's strength you know it's not equal we're physically different but with the firearm i can be as strong as that that attacker so i absolutely think we we do need to make sure more women especially women of color get this firearms education that's a good point because i am just super strong uh, when we uh, think of self-protection, <laughs> we typically think of protection against abusers, home intruders, things that you were just talking about, sexual abuse and, and the like. But we also see it in other arenas. One example, in my opinion, you, you, you two can definitely tell me if and when I'm wrong, uh, is the difference of treatment by police against the, for example, the anti-lockdown protesters uh, from last month, many of whom were openly armed and the Black Lives Matters protesters this month, the vast majority of whom have been unarmed. It appeared, at least to me, as though the police are less eager to use tear gas and batons and tasers and pepper spray against people who are all armed with guns. Am I missing the mark here? Because it's also true that the anti-lockdown protesters also happen to be mostly white, although there are many you know, Black Lives Matter protesters who are white as well, uh, or is it that the prevalence of firearms ownership is a deterrent to police brutality? And I, I will start with, uh, with you, Tig. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, obviously, if I'm armed and I'm openly carrying and there are a mass of us who are armed and openly carrying, the police don't want a shootout. You know, they they don't want an incident to escalate to that, you know, to that magnitude where there's 50 armed civilians and 50 law enforcement officers, you know, having an open shootout in the street. Nobody wants that scenario to happen, Um, especially not law enforcement and our our politicians. They don't want to see that. Um, However, I think seeing African-Americans armed at these peaceful uh, Black Lives Matter protests will, you know, make sure that they are treated differently. Um, just like the other protests that have happened from the anti-lockdown. Um, I think it's it's one, it's the, the African-Americans or black people are not seen at, are seen as more aggressive with firearms than their white yes. counterparts. So mm-hmm. that's one issue. It's just law enforcement isn't used to seeing that. It's not normalized. So it's automatically a radical idea when you think of it in the first place. You know, automatically when you, when you look at a Black Panther, you know, a, a group of people who created, you know, welfare um, programs in their own communities and they yep. fed women and children and mm-hmm. education programs and literacy programs. When you think of a Black Panther, a lot of people, their first thought is radical and yep. bad person and terrorist. Violent. And, you know, and, yeah. you hear those yeah. things. But when there are these other groups who are, you know, comprised of mostly white people carrying firearms, you don't think radical. You don't think crazy. You don't think, you know, you don't think these extremes. And I feel like a lot of that has to do with 
obviously going back to slavery and gun ownership, you know, post-slavery, you know, mm-hmm. being illegal for black people. But two, it's the stereotypes of, you know, black people being more aggressive, the stereotypes of us being thugs or criminals, the, the, the media, movies, TV, music, you know, it's all right. It's all come together to create this narrative that black people with firearms are extremists. And that's one thing that I've been working to change. Um, and I know people like Antonia, you know, her representation, just the fact that she is a black woman, a black woman who has a firearm, that's changing the narrative that we're not angry, we're not irrational, we're law-abiding citizens, and we just want to protect ourselves just like every other taxpaying citizen in this country. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, Antonia, same question to you. Do you think that having more armed protesters at these rallies, including more armed uh, black protesters, would help to kind of calm things down among the police because no one wants to bring pepper uh, pepper spray to a gunfight? Or, or do you think that there's the potential that because of the implicit bias and the, the stereotyping of black people that it could potentially actually trigger the police to be even more brutal? Or do you think possibly some mixture of those? Yeah, I've gotten questions, particularly it would always be media, the question of, well, do you really think that if you, like that same thing, that if it were an African-American who had a firearm versus a white person, if a police officer, um, you know, would see the African-American person as less of a threat or if not more of a threat. And it's definitely, it's not something that I'm going to be like, oh, well, yeah, it's going to be totally fine. That That's that's just not completely accurate even me as a black woman i'm a trained person with firearms and i've been used to this but there are times sometimes i'm like well that other person doesn't know who i am all they see is my skin color maybe they have a a, a bias maybe they don't i don't know um and so i'm not i'm gonna i'm not gonna lie and say like i don't fear those type of things or those type of situations. Right. Um, and unfortunately, I also think that I feel like I, just like with a lot of different areas, and I'm sure other people feel this way too, understand this, is where you feel like you have to even be um, more of an upstanding citizen, um, you know, to really show that you're fine, that you're okay, you know. Um, and so do I think that it's going to go away if we just, like some people want, where they literally don't want African black people to have firearms or not to have fire or gun free zones in where black people are Um, with campus carry movement. I remember specifically in UT Austin saying that they shouldn't have um, campus carry where anywhere a, like predominantly African American people congregate on campus. Who was was saying this? Who was saying this? Right. Oh, these are the professors at UT Austin. Oh, wow. This is a real quote. Uh, yeah, from a whole manifesto <laughs> that they had of, you know, they shouldn't have it near any um, black, you know, specifically black conversation classes and African-American studies and stuff like that. They shouldn't, and they're not thinking, oh, wait, maybe those black people also should have guns too, but you're actually keeping them from having it. I digress. It's a completely, it's, a, it's, cra- it's messed up and, and distorted, but um, that is what you're seeing in the larger picture is people who think, well, then you, black people should just not have firearms or you just shouldn't have firearms around black people. I think the opposite. I think the more, like Sigma was saying, the more that people see black people with a firearm, specifically black men, I think black men especially get, get um, the prejudice even worse than black women, I think. Um, they are seen more as more aggressive and stuff like that. Right. My brother, I mean, he's six two, 
like long dreads and stuff like that. He's like probably he's a chemical engineer. And I mean, obviously, I understand he's and that's he's a nerd, thing. but no one yeah. else doesn't see him like that. Right. So I I'm concerned about his safety even more so when he wants to open carry or carry in general. So it's something to, to think about. And that's a perfect example of this because, you know, you, you just said your brother's a chemical engineer. So I'm going to assume he's not a, a thuggish chemical engineer. I mean, maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah. there is such a thing, but I, I, I doubt it. And yet many people, when they see him, are going to make a lot, especially if he, he's just wearing, you know, daily, you know, uh, walking around clothes and, and, you know, he's not dressed up or whatever. People are going to make, make a lot of very unfair and potentially dangerous assumptions about him, dangerous for him, uh, assumptions about him. When I've been seeing these these protests with um, you know, lots of pictures of, of, you know, black people. And of course, right now with COVID-19, they're wearing masks. So I'm seeing black people with masks holding guns. Of course, I'm an anarchist. So I'm like, I'm yeah, let's do this. Like, I'm happy. But I know that a lot of people look at that and they're like, no, this is a problem. But if they were if they were white people that were dressed in more traditionally, you know, white attire and, you know, also had their masks on their their, you know, American flag, Trump MAGA masks on and their guns, everyone would go, yep, yep. Second Amendment. You know, that's what our founders fought for. And so it's very much an implicit thing. Now, now, um, Tig, you mentioned this and, um, you know, we don't really know because how the how the public would respond, because we know in the past Whenever large groups of black people would, you know, have guns, governments would pass sweeping gun control largely to stop specifically them from carrying in public. Most notably, uh, in more recent history, in the 1960s, you had talked about, you know, when the slaves were freed, they immediately, the first gun control acts in this country were to prevent uh, freed slaves from being able to own guns for the, I guess, somewhat understandable concern that people who had been owned and treated like cattle for many uh, centuries might actually now be upset and, and go after the people who robbed them of every everything that they had, which uh, maybe they should have. But anyway, all that to say, uh, we know that, for example, in the 1960s, uh, when Black Panthers were going to legislatures, open carrying, not harming anyone, keeping perfect trigger discipline, but making a lot of white people very uncomfortable, uh, Ronald Reagan signed laws that banned open carry in California with the blessing of the NRA, of course, uh, to stop the Black Panthers. Do you think that there is an aspect of this where the more people see black people in general, people of color, people who don't fit the normal, I guess, stereotype of Americans who own and walk around with guns, the better that will be that over time that will normalize? Or do you think it has the, 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 the risk of doing the opposite where people become more and more concerned about it? I think eventually it will normalize black gun ownership. And I actually created an event to help fix that exact problem. The treating black people like they're criminals because they're gun owners and right. having black people be afraid to exercise their Second Amendment rights because of all the stereotypes and the fear of being treated differently. And it's called the National Range Day. So this Saturday, I have coordinated with over 100 instructors across the country, 100 black instructors across the country and we are all going to our local gun ranges wearing all black and we are giving free free uh advice free tips we're helping black people who go to the range buy firearms buy classes get their carry permits become a member at their range and this is happening saturday i will be in atlanta georgia actually um, hosting the national range day atlanta version at stoddard's and we're expecting to have three to 400 people show up just at that one range. Wow. So when we see, 
Yeah, it's going to be major. Um, and when we see these images next week, so guns.com just did an article about it. The USCCA posted it. But when we see the actual images of all these black people wearing all black, going to their gun ranges and shooting together next week, there's going to have to be some sort of conversation. Oh, yeah. Of course, there's going to be pushback. But people are going to have to say, wait a minute. You know, these people are getting legally trained. They're getting educated from certified firearms yep. instructors. There is a shift happening right now in front of our eyes and you know maybe we should pay attention or maybe we can reconsider our thoughts about black gun ownership that's awesome now antonia do you tend to agree that the more people see just generalized you know black people that are you know carrying firearms and they're not they're not thugs they're like anyone else that are carrying firearms they're doing it for their self-protection and their and their and their connection protection of themselves as a community do you think that that will serve to kind of normalize things over time yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tig invited me to be one of those instructors here in Colorado. So I will be participating in that as well on Saturday. That's awesome. And um, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to, you know, meet a lot of people in the community, um, right. even more so, but specifically after everything that's been happening. Um, I think a lot more people are interested. They're open minded to, again, that, that idea of self-defense. And um, but unfortunately, I know I remember as a student of the you know, the, the cost prohibitive aspects of training, of going to the gun range. And it's intimidating, too. There's a lot of people who are just intimidating when you go, go to a gun it's range. It's a new thing. And any, any new thing yeah. can be intimidating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But then also then add that, you know, the fact that, you know, your skin color or whatever things right. that you may have that just keep you from even going through the door um the in the first place so i hope it's a i'm, I'm really excited to just participate in that and see other images like what she's saying is um it is important for people to see that but it is also important for us to remember that unfortunately just because more people are going to see us and know that we're legally armed and stuff like that doesn't mean that there's not going to be injustices like what we've seen with like Kenneth Walker uh, right. legally um, he legally owned a firearm and he was 1 a.m. in the morning uh, no knock order um, going through he thought someone was trying to break into his apartment and someone was, was trying to break someone was trying to break into his apartment they just had yeah, legal well, authorization yeah, to do so yeah no exactly <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly someone now that that someone ended up being law enforcement right. and and that's that's the issue and he didn't he wasn't released until what a couple of weeks ago a few weeks ago um and goa we put out a statement on that on no knock orders and how it's really it's dangerous not obviously for the, that party but for both parties and yeah. that's why um, we've been against red flag laws. Part of the reason, of course, it's unconstitutional, but what the fact that non-knock orders never are really good for anybody, but yet they still persist, particularly in, in like you said, non-violent um, crimes like, like a drug issue or a drug crime. Um, right. So things like that, things like we saw with the Mart Arbery, where you know I was on the grapevine a few weeks ago after that happened, and I was the only pro program person essentially on that panel, but they were listening and they were saying, okay, yeah, all right, gun rights, that's cool. But at the end of the day, this is their words, I'm still a Negro with a gun. Um, and at the end of the day, if you see things like Philando Castile and you see things yep. like Kenneth Walker and people who were legally owned, illegally owned a firearm, but still didn't get the justice that they deserved or like Ahmad Arbery didn't even get the due process 
to even use the defense that he was shooting someone um, with self-defense in self-defense. Um, and in fact, the McMichaels were able to use that the first time. It's, it's, it's absolutely absurd. Um, then people start to think, okay, well, even if I did things legally in the right way, is the system still going to protect me? And I think that's important that we bring up those two types of um, concerns that people have, particularly in the black community. Because you can't just flippantly, it's easy for me to say, well, if you, if more of you had guns, then it would be a lot. No, it, it wouldn't in and of itself be easier because of that bias, because of the stereotype. Side note here, you know, we keep talking about, and I hate that we're, we're in this defensive situation where we keep having to say, well, you know, black people aren't thugs. Every thug we've talked about during this episode have been white people, most of them employed by the government who have, you know, either gunned people down in the middle of the road or broken into people's houses and, and killed them for wanting to defend themselves against home invasion. Uh, they did it to Fred Hampton, and they did it to Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Taylor? Uh, Kenneth Walker. Kenneth Walker. Um, I mean, we see this time and again. Um, they, they killed Tamir Rice and, and John Crawford for holding what were obviously BB guns. Um, so, you know, if you want to talk about thugs, let's talk about the people that are going around killing people en masse with largely with impunity and, and never and often not even being punished for it uh, and having people defending them for it. That's a whole other subject. But this brings us to while you're on that too, real quick. Um, you know, we keep talking about these bad apples. I feel like law enforcement is one field where you just you cannot have Can't any have bad, bad, apples. bad apples. Like I agree. one is too many. That's unacceptable. And we need to figure out a way to eradicate all of the bad apples from law enforcement. Now, it's like saying, well, we have a pilot who, you know, lands safely 50 percent of the time. Like we can't have any bad pilots flying right. airplanes where people's lives are in danger, you know, or, you know, can be in danger from their actions. We, we right. have to have great law enforcement officers or none. Like, if we don't have great law enforcement officers, then there is no other exception. If you're not top of the line law enforcement, if you're not treating everyone fairly and safely and responsibly, then you should not be a law enforcement officer at all. Find another job. It's not for you. And, and the people right. need it's to be able to. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Antonio. I was going to say with, with that, like with George Floyd, um, the the police officer that killed him um, had 17 infractions before had 17 yep. write ups. Um, so obviously, when people are like, oh, we're trying to do better, like which of uh, what other profession where you were, would you be able to have 17 chances and after 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 have a firearm and not have all those other things that comes with it? 17 chances where you have beaten or killed people. Like, it's not 17 chances like I yelled at the customer because they came in and gave me an attitude or, you know, I, I, I skimmed some money from the cash register. I either beat up or killed people 17 times and, and, a, and, a, and a board looked at that one. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. Which is, I mean, it's a reason to end qualified immunity because I think a lot of these bad apples we just saw in Buffalo where the police... Uh, there were two police that knocked over an old man that was handing them their helmet. And as a result, the those two are uh, now being charged. And the uh, the police union said if any of if any of the people on this uh, uh, protest detail are charged with anything, we will not legally protect them from being sued. Fifty seven of them quit from that detail as a result of that. Now, I got news for you. The people that quit 
are not the people who are the ones that we that we don't want to quit. Like the ones who didn't quit are the ones who said, that's fine. I don't plan on beating anyone up or abusing anyone. If I use force, it'll be for a reason. So I'm not worried about being sued. The ones who quit are the ones who went, whoa, 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 wait a second. We knock people over all the time. We treat them like garbage. We deny them their right to, to you know, peacefully assemble. I don't want to get sued over that. So just ending qualified immunity would fix a lot of that. But so there seems to be a paradoxical belief among many, I would say most, in the conservative movement. That government shouldn't be trusted and that the Second Amendment was written to allow us to fight against tyrants. And they talk about how the tree of liberty must be refreshed with the blood of tyrants and patriots. But then at the same time, they say that we should always comply with the orders of law enforcement. And if they harm us, it's probably our faults. Do you two see the same things? And uh, where do you think that comes from? And I forget who I asked first last time. So I I think it was Tig last time that I asked first. So I'll, I'll ask Antonio this time. I apologize if I if I get that wrong. You're fine. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's what I've been seeing a lot of. And particularly from the eye of seeing things through the Second Amendment and stuff like that. It's been really... It's been really uh, concerning to see that, you know, the ones that are usually on the 2A side, um, on some of them, not going to say all of them, but usually they are. And usually they understand the concept of we are our own first responders, et cetera, et cetera, until, you know, this last the last week where they hold defund police and abolish police or whatever, whatever narrative that that's going through, Um and I understand they're trying to essentially um, go against this narrative that seems very to the extreme. But what they're doing is essentially giving the left another option of, oh, well, you are you said yourself that police should be the first responders. And that's yeah. why it's so important that they're not disbanded, that there's they still have as much funding as they need mm-hmm. um, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So you're essentially saying that we are not our own first responders. We're, what happened in the Second Amendment there? And so I think it's really important that that narrative does not take over the fact that, look, the founders were not looking at, oh, what about police? Police officers, I I hate to break it to some people, but they are actually funded by the government. They're they're part of the government. Turns out they're and, actually uh, a part of the government. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I know this is going to get real, a lot of people mad. Apparently, it's really controversial. Getting, but the police are and, and stuff like that. It's definitely it's very controversial. But the police are actually part of the government. Turns out. Yeah, very controversial to say that. Um, so that is part of what the Constitution is about. Is those. They are tyrannical government, and those who enforce those laws, those who make those laws, those who interpret those laws, if they are tyrants, then we have to have an ability to go against those people, um, but also go against the people who are making those laws and making sure that there's a system that enforces those people to be enforcers of those unconstitutional laws. So. Um, just saying, I think it's important that we stay consistent, but don't forget the Second Amendment and that the fact that, yeah, we are our own first responders. And then after the fact, yes, we, we do need people who are going to uphold their oath of the, upholding the Constitution and protecting our rights. That's really what police officers and law enforcement are there for. The government is there um, for, period. Uh, Tig, your your reaction to seeing people with their "Don't Tread on Me" sticker right next to their thin blue line sticker? I, I think honestly that that paradox or that idea only applies to certain people. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, hey, if you're black, comply. If you're black, don't <laughs> run away. You won't get shot. If you're black, right, just do right, what they right. say. Yeah. But if it were them or someone who looked like them, I don't think they would be singing the same tune. And I think, again, it's a lot of racial undertones in that in that thought process. The, the you know, police, lives matter, thin blue line, a lot of that, that messaging and that rhetoric came after Black Lives Matter, you know, started saying their, their sayings and Black Lives yeah, Matter, and, you know, and all then of the opposition that, yeah. of that or the response to that is, no, all lives matter and police lives matter. And it's it's saying that what I'm saying with all lives matter is a, is the exact opposite of what you're saying. That's the message that we're getting. And I feel like that just comply, just listen. But, oh, no, I'm a patriot. I'm a part of the boogaloo. Like all of that is you're, you're setting different rules for different types of people. So. If, if you're going to say, okay, I believe in small government, I believe I am my first responder, then that should apply to everyone. But unfortunately, with what they're actually saying is that, no, 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 this only applies to me and people who look like me. Everyone else, you're on your own. And that is the issue. And That's- Spike, I mean, this is this is a libertarian moment. I don't, I don't know. This is This is where people in the libertarian side can say, oh, yeah, well, usually a lot of times conservatives, they are okay with big government on certain issues um it's on certain parts of government that they're they're okay with and so um i mean i think that's on the two-way side we've always been appreciative of the libertarian party of being consistent on that um but also the fact that yeah on the government issue if you really believe in limited government and they're constitutional conservatives and stuff like that who do believe that and accountability. But right. you need to stay consistent because people are watching you and that you're giving them a reason to not trust you next time um, or call you a hypocrite. Um, people have been coming to me about I mean, I'm getting in trouble from everybody. That's usually what I get. I, do, I get. And I posted a picture about the Black Panthers who were aren't who were protecting BLM protesters in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I definitely got people who were like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, Second Amendment is for everybody. And then they're like, at the same time, you look at the other posts and you're like, oh, well, not those. <laughs> not, not those them. Americans. Not for them. You everybody know. else, but not specifically not them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, Antonia. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, it's part of that is that we have to we have to show that we have to expose that type of hypocrisy and, and show that it doesn't help people get it doesn't help others want to be on our side when we do stuff like that. Right. Yeah, I, I, I will say libertarians at this moment should be the ones coming out. And I and I will say, I mean, I, I'm the vice presidential nominee and I've certainly been coming out saying, hey, listen, folks, we're the ones that have been wanting to scale down the police and increase, uh, you know, uh, private gun ownership from the beginning. Like we've been consistent on this issue. We, we have there's never been a, a chance, a time when we at least not as a movement have ever said, oh, yeah, we need more government involvement in law enforcement. And there's never been a time that we've said, oh, yeah, uh, government, uh, you know, people, fewer people should have guns uh, of any race. By the way, I have to take I'm sorry. I have to defend the Boogaloo people. It's that you, you triggered me slightly. There. No, I do because there are definitely some that are what you're talking about. But I will say that I have some you know, boog boys that are in my campaign team who are actually have gone to Wisconsin, uh, to Minnesota, and have gone to Atlanta, and have gone to Louisville, and have gone to New York specifically to protect the protesters and get out in the front in between them and the police, not in a threatening way, but simply to just say, "Yeah, we're here with our." Hawaiian shirts and our and our tactical equipment and all that stuff 
And, uh, you know, hopefully now things can remain common. Oddly enough, they didn't experience anyone tear gassing or pepper balling anyone. So I, I will say, it, obviously it takes all kinds, but I will say that the Boog Boys I associate with it, at the very least, uh, have been incredibly uh, understanding of, of this situation and have really been in front of it. But I think that's also a difference between those who are libertarians and those who are kind of just more conservative and like Hawaiian shirts or whatever. Um, so that kind of brings us to the next thing. Um, in recent days, we've seen, actually, I'll start with this first because this is my show and I'm running for office. Joe Jorgensen and I, uh, ladies are proposing a series of police controls at the federal level to combat police brutality, including ending qualified immunity, ending the military surplus program, ending civil asset forfeiture, using the department of justice to aggressively go after abusive officers and departments with a history of brutality and, and much more. I'm obviously not asking you to endorse our campaign or anything like that, but I will ask you, do you think that these measures would be helpful and uh, what other actions do you think could be taken at the federal and state level to deal with this problem with police? And I know we've touched on that a little, but what other things do you think would be helpful? Tig. I, I think Tig was next. I apologize. I'm having a hard time keeping track it's of No worries. Um, yeah, so all of the things that you listed, I think, are great ideas um, for police reform. And just like we talked about earlier, you know, having those police officers have to spend some time and integrate into that community. Um, also, you know, just from a, a firearms, you know, using firearms perspective, a lot of law enforcement don't have the training that they need to be as accurate and as efficient with firearms as they should be. If you carry a firearm every day for, for your job and you only have to qualify once a year, you know, that that's an issue. Or the only time you ever shoot is the week before qualification. That's the only practice you have. But you carry a firearm and are authorized to use it. For your full-time job, I find issue with that. I think we need to standardize or reform just the firearms qualification for post-certification. Um, you know, there needs to be continuous training. I feel like it, it should also be free. Um, a lot of departments, but not all, a lot of departments do give law enforcement officers free training and free ammunition to go to ranges. But, you know, I think there needs to be some sort of standardized testing, some sort of recertification, maybe quarterly instead of just annually. Also, physical fitness. Um, I'll take a direct quote from my ex-husband who was talking about you know, use of force with law enforcement. And he says that a lot of use of force issues are because they don't have the endurance to fight. So a lot of issues are escalated to using force because hand-to-hand -hand combat is not a strong suit or running the after them officers. or running after them right, or something or like that. Or giving wow, chase, okay. you know, things like that, you know, that could be the reason why a lot of these incidents are getting escalated when it could have just been a fist fight, where it could have just been a tumble or it could have just been a ground fight are now escalating to now I'm using my weapon. And I think all kinds of combatives, hand to hand combat tactics, training should be taught to law enforcement. Like what are the other alternatives to shooting a person? that we can make sure you're trained on. And then also physical fitness, height, weight requirements like we had in the military. You know, are you in shape? Are you physically fit to do this job to the best of your ability? And if you're not, then maybe this is not the job for you. Things like that, I feel like need to be considered and standardized across the country. Yeah. Antonia, you you perked up there for a second when, when, when Tig said it. Are police not given free training for, for firearms usage? Am I misunderstanding that? Uh, yeah, they're not, and they have to pay for ammo, they have to pay for range, range time. Um, I used to work at a gun range as a, as a trainer, and I would see it all the time. Like she was saying, yeah, if they, when they were qualifying, it was like a week before, but 
yeah, a lot of the departments are not paying for um, not only like ammo and, and things like that, but they're they're not paying for um, scenarios like home defense or um, I know in Dallas, for, for example, I remember finding out that it was right after that police officer, um, the the white woman who Amber shot Geiger. the yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I was like, surely the Dallas Police Department have, you know, scenario training, like the one I was going through at the time in Dallas, and they said no, they don't have, they don't get training like that unless they're paying for it out of their own pocket. That is and horrifying. So I, I, yeah, absolutely. So things like that, you don't probably most people are not going to know about that unless they're in law enforcement or they're in the field of of like dealing with or working with law enforcement, particularly on the qualification aspect of things. But that is a huge problem. And if anything, it's it's also kind of mind boggling of all these budgets that you hear about and you're just like they can't afford to even make sure that yeah. they have the training they need so where is the money going um so they're doing a disservice oh. to the actual people the law enforcement that are in those police departments so yeah that's a big problem of all the things they're not funding i mean they're walking they're driving around in mine resistant you know personnel carriers and they got rocket launchers and they, they don't tra- give them the ammo needed to tra- that is insane uh tig you mentioned in the military not only are they far more trained uh but their uh as i understand it their rules of engagement are far more defensive in nature than what police are expected to do with us like the the uh, correct me if i'm wrong but the 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 rules of engagement for when force can be used by Hello? military overseas yeah, i think he got are you still there <laughs> yes there you go Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but the military uh, actually has stricter rules of engagement for dealing with people that they're fighting overseas than the police do here. Is that not correct? I can't speak for every, you know, every police department, but in some cases, yes. Um, And then also there's for military. And again, it's, it's, it's very different. It's apples and oranges, but there's a lot more consistent training. You know, imagine being a police officer for for you have to go through what 10 weeks of training to pass post certification. So you've only had 10 weeks of training in that 10 weeks. You have to learn about use of force. You have to learn EVOC, which is the driving, you know, how to use your maneuver, your vehicle. You have to learn the laws in 10 weeks. You know, there's, that's a lot of information to try to squeeze in 10 weeks and then to not have standardized continuous training. Like the military has every year we had to go through training every quarter. There were, classes and recertifications that we had to go through. There were physical fitness tests. We took a PT test almost every single month to make sure we stayed physically fit. And we don't have that with law enforcement where there's some sort of standard standardization of recertifying for multiple things, not just the once a year going to the range. And I feel like um, they need they need more training, period. They just need more training. I feel like it should be federally funded. If they're government employees or funded by the government, the government should pay for it. Those classes, the instructors, the ammo, the range fees, all of it should be paid for. You have no excuse as a law enforcement officer to go get that additional training that you need to to do your job. Someone needs to be paying for it. That is horrifying that the people who are authorized to use guns as they see fit with qualified immunity don't have more training on actually using them in public. That's 
Holy crap. So in recent days, we one of the measures that we've seen getting increasing momentum uh, behind is the defund the police movement. Um, what are your thoughts on defunding the police? Is abolishing or even defunding or reducing the funds of police possible? And if so, what, what do you think that would look like? And I'll, I'll start with Antonia. Um, man, I mean, that whole defund the police, first of all, the people who are in the movement don't even have a consensus of what they believe that looks like. <laughs> so that's going to be part of the problem. What we're seeing is like when you see on CNN, and I was watching a couple of days ago when the Minneapolis uh, city council president literally is having a conversation back and forth with Cuomo, and she cannot give a direct answer of what that actually looks like. Uh, there's some problems. Um, but from what I've heard from the most time, most of the time when I, what I've heard about people saying when they say defund the police, it seems like what they're really saying is reform the police. Um, do, do they mean take away funding? Um, not all the funding, but reallocate funding from them and then go to, for example, community um, resources and stuff like that. That can go to things like that can go to more de-escalation activities and stuff like that in training or in, in different ways of in like working with the community. Yes, that's what I see a lot of. Um, I see a lot of people saying that it's just even just lowering the budget um, so they don't have the funding to get the type of, uh, you know, militarization type of, you know, weapons and stuff like right, that that you're right. seeing and tactics that they're seeing um, that is really for the military and should be separate from police departments. Um, so all of those together, I think, is civil asset uh, forfeiture reform, stuff like that, yep, yep. to essentially uh, reform the law enforcement uh, culture in general. But also unions. It's, it's interesting, again, it's kind of that same thing where now they're talking about police unions. Um, essentially, it's different <laughs> when they talk about teacher unions or whatever. Right, right, right. Accountability. But now they really want, you know, police unions to be accountable for what they're doing. And so that's part of the, that's part of the reform that I'm seeing, too, when people talk about it. So personally, um, do I think that's actually going to happen where they're going to literally disband police departments and stuff like that? No, I don't see that actually happening. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see, like, we have three different, very different bills that are out right now where we have Justin Amash libertarian who has unqualified immunity yep. um, and he was on the forefront with that and then we have a, a democrat supported one that they're trying to push right now and then we have a, a republican one where tim scott um he said that he's going to be leading the, the 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 path on that one as well so it's going to be very different ways of how they say they're going to reform police but for the most part i think the big narrative is it is actually reforming police not not disbanding, not abolishing or defunding police. Yeah, so that's, you know, Tig, when we talk about defunding the police, because that's, that's actually part of what we've started saying in our, in our Joe's and, and my platform, when we're saying defunding the police, we mean at the federal level, ending civil asset forfeiture, where they basically steal property from people before trial. And if the charges are dropped or they're found not guilty, they have to sue the government to get their property back, which is that's just armed theft. Uh, so ending that, ending this military surplus program where not only are they getting this ridiculous, you know, military equipment that has no use in our neighborhoods, 
uh, but also they're getting military-style training on how to use this military-style equipment, which sort of changes the whole mentality of what they're doing, where they increasingly see us as enemy combatants and our loved ones in our neighborhoods as war zones and, and you know, potential people that are going to try and, and, and kill them. Um, so that's what we talk about when we mean defunding police. But what are your thoughts overall on the defund the police movement? Do you think that that's a good thing? Do you think it's something that's possible? What, what do you think of that? I mean, I think the points that you made about, you know, police reform and making sure we don't militarize our law enforcement, I completely agree with that. I think defunding, especially some of these smaller uh, police units, is going to be very harmful to a lot of the people asking to defend defund the police. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine if they don't, they already don't have the resources, apparently, for training um, and continuing education. But if you are a community of minorities who don't have firearms, you don't, you know, have access to any type of weapons or you're not trained on how to use those weapons and then you defund it or you voted to defund your local law enforcement, then who are you going to call? Who Who's going to be there to protect you if they don't have the assets or resources that they need, not the military assets, but just the, the just regular, regular law, law enforcement, enforcement assets. assets right. yep. Exactly. If they don't have those, then... Who are you going to call? What's going to happen when someone breaks into your house? You know, you, it's going to force you to have to take responsibility for your own safety. And a lot of people still, even with everything that's going on, are not ready mentally. They cannot fathom being a gun owner um, mentally. They, they're still trying to warm up to the idea, but they're not ready to take control of their own safety. And, you know, I respect that. But, you know, there has to be some sort of answer. There has to be something in place to make sure that innocent civilians in these communities aren't just being taken advantage of by the people who, you know, are criminals who are going to take advantage of having less police patrols or less police funding in these neighborhoods. That's fair. So you may have noticed I lit up when you said, who are they going to call? Because my first thought was what the Black Panthers did. I'm going to go on a a very small anarchist rant now. So... (laughs) The Black Panthers saw a the the and and, and the, their their long and I'm I'm probably not telling either of you something you don't know I'm telling the audience uh, the, the the full name is the Black Panther uh, Protection Party I believe it's what it was called and the idea behind it uh, was I know I'm saying that name wrong now that I just said that anyway the Black Panthers their original purpose was uh, they realized that the police weren't going to give them the protection that they wanted and that the police were actually making their communities less safe and allowing criminals to to have an influence there. And so they came up with an outside-of-government solution, which was protection uh, councils and, and actual people that would go around and, and protect the community. You know, people remember that they fought against, you know, police brutality, but that wasn't all they did. They also fought to create a, a basically a system of mutual aid and mesh protection networks in these communities and starting in Oakland and in other communities around mostly in California. And the whole idea behind it was we'll provide for our own. We'll provide our own protection. You mentioned they actually started welfare. They started uh, uh, after-school lunch programs. They started mutual aid societies. And they were actually being, you know, they were being influenced by far-left and anarchist propaganda about how you build solutions outside of a a government that is designed to harm you. And of course, what happened as a result of that, the government came in and and crushed everything they did. They killed Fred Hampton. They, uh, you know, they went after, you know, everyone else that was involved in that. They destroyed... uh, um, uh, Huey Newton and the, the, his life, and they destroyed everything else. They and they and and they used uh, uh, counterintelligence programs to uh, condition 
the white American public to believe that the Black Panthers were these dangerous criminals who were, you know, just waiting to break into white neighborhoods and kill everyone when the op- the opposite was true. They wanted to be able to build their own community. I know I'm off on a whole rant. I'm sorry. So anyway, uh, that's because whenever we get into, you know, what would we do without the police? I immediately start ranting about the Panthers. Um so, ladies, this has been absolutely amazing. I, I, I really appreciate both of your time and uh, your this opportunity to talk with you about these issues. Uh, before we sign off, I want to give each of you a chance to give any final closing thoughts that you have, including promoting your organizations, anything you have, in co- have coming up. I know you've already talked about the range day, but anything else, anything you have to promote, anything you thought that we should have touched on that we didn't, really anything at all that you would like to say, uh, I'll start with Antonia, but Antonia and Tig, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Spike, for having us on. I really appreciate having a conversation like this. It's really, I think it's part of it, is having more conversations like this. Um, so, you know, when it comes down to what we've seen in the last few weeks, i probably say one of the most concerning things that I've seen are people who are on both sides using this opportunity um, to make it more about self-serving and less about the community itself um, or in in general even. Uh, When one community is hurting, then really no other community is doing as well as they should be. And we need to remember that. And so um, I think part of that is as like director of outreach for GOA, I see it as an outreach opportunity. I see trying to get more people on our side when it comes to this and utilizing this obviously horrible situation, but hopefully use, using it so we can have more positive outcomes. And so it really rhetoric matters, how you say things matter um, and and Black Lives Matter. Okay. And then, and no, um, but I'm not going to be as poetic as that, but essentially, yeah, but it's, it's, it's remembering doing our own research, remembering that for the most part, other people are, have a, a good reason for what they're doing. And you should probably try and find out what that good reason is instead of trying to find out what the bad part of that person is or the criminal history of somebody is or yes. whatever and find the grace and the redemption and um, the merciful side, the compassionate side of of this whole conversation. And I think that's going to really lead a lot of us to remember that you know, we're all human beings and um, to be a human being when we are replying to people um, that might be different than us or have a different perspective. But at the end of the day, they're just trying to live a better life and have a better life for their for their children and the people that they care about just as much as you do. Thank you so much, Antonia. And you're right, because it's one one thing to remember is we're not saying that these folks that are the victims of police brutality are saints or angels. We're saying that they're murder victims and we need to remember that, that whatever they did didn't deserve to be murdered for it. So, but thank you for that. And, uh, Tig, uh, the floor is now yours. Sure. I I just want to say thank you for inviting me to this conversation, Antonia. Um, I really appreciate having conversations like these. Um, I have a grassroots organization. I'm boots on ground. I, I get to look these women and these men in the face and I see their concern. I see their frustrations. I see their fear. And I just wanted to say that National Range Day is happening on Saturday. We are going to go out in droves to the range, you know, educate ourselves and exercise our Second Amendment rights to self-defense. 
And I think it's something that it's not going to be the only time it ever happens. I want to do this more frequently, but I feel like if you're out there, if you're scared, um, if you feel like the, the country is not serving you, if you feel like your, your politicians are not serving you like they're supposed to do as, you know, we are their employers, then go learn how to defend yourself. Go purchase the firearm. Go learn how to protect yourself. You can find that directory of participating firearms instructors in the link in my bio on Instagram. I am at my sister's keeper defense. And then my website is my sister's keeper defense.com also. Thank you. And, and Antonia, do you want a, a chance to plug your social media and website and so forth? Yeah, uh, you can find me um, talking a big game um, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, at Antonia underscore Okafor. And then, um, of course, become a GOA member. Um, if you like what you're hearing, become a member and help our what we're doing in our in our mission. So at gunowners.org. Um, and we're going to be doing a lot more stuff on the outreach side. So if you want to get involved, email me, Antonia at gunowners.org. And let, let me know your ideas. Let me know how we can help you um, with things like like what TIG is doing, stuff like that. If you have ideas like that or need help, um, I'm open in all years. So um, just let me know. Uh, email or, you know, Twitter or Instagram for the most part. The GOA. They're like the NRA, except they don't suck. Um, ladies, thank you so much for, uh, for, for uh, coming on my show. Uh, please stick around. I want to talk with you during the outro. Um, but, folks, thanks again for tuning in to this episode of My Fellow Americans. Um, I can't even begin to tell you all the things I'm going to be on. I'm doing multiple appearances every single day, so I can't even tell you where to start. I'll be sharing them on Muddy Waters and my social media. So when they happen, I'll be telling you some are live, some are pre-recorded. I can't even keep track of them anymore. Um, but uh, I do thank you for tuning in again. Uh, we will see you uh, next week uh, for on Tuesday for the Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I will parse through the week's events like the sweet summer boys that we are and then on wednesday we will be having a juneteenth special and we'll be we'll be talking with pat carter who is a uh, a local official who is in charge of the uh juneteenth committee in lee county south carolina and we'll be talking about juneteenth and the legacy behind that and uh, i would just like to thank you again for tuning in to this episode of my fellow americans we will see you very soon and god bless you
Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye and a dime with a blind leads a blind. Who am I to deny with cry when a loved one dies? I recognize that body outside for the holes in the body that was alive. Now they find them with chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at night. It ain't even make it to the news at night. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. All these tears, I close my eyes. Open up the only fine. I'm in line. There's a point that's murder happening all the time. Either 